here's the opening line that I planned for my sermon. I am always forgetting things. Uh, case in point, there's a video. Uh, but I'm not forgetting like appointments or deadlines or due dates or things like that. I'm forgetting actual things like my phone, my keys, my wallet. Uh, I especially, I forget the things that my wife asks me to remember, like take this package to the post office before you leave or take these movies back to the store before you come home. I'm always forgetting those things. So I've gotten to the point where I start to put all of my stuff on top of the things she asks me to remember, so like my keys, my wallet, my phone. I do that so I cannot leave the house without at least seeing, touching, maybe even picking up the thing that she's asked me to remember. And still, I only remember about 50% of the time. Like, it's, it's kind of bad. But I thought I had scored a victory a few weeks ago. I came home for lunch. And my wife said, hey, would you take these movies back to family video before you come home tonight? I said, sure. Went through the routine. I put all my stuff on top of it so that before I left, I'd have to grab the videos. And I did put a point on the board for Jordan. So I got the videos in my hand. I get back to the office here. I bring them in. I put them on my desk because I know if I leave them in the car, I'm going to forget about them. So I bring them in, put them on the desk, and again, keys, wallet, phone, everything on top of it. So that when 5 o'clock rolls around, I'm grabbing my stuff. There are the movies. I pick them up again. Two points on the board. I'm doing great. And I remember distinctly walking out the church doors, so proud of myself that I had remembered to grab these movies. I was strutting out to my car thinking, she can't give me guff about nothing tonight because I remembered the movies. I got in the car. I put them in the passenger seat. I drove home. I pulled into my driveway. I took the keys out of the ignition and looked at my passenger seat and was immediately humbled. I was so proud and so excited that I had remembered to grab the movies that I forgot to actually do anything with them. So rather sheepishly, I put the keys back in the ignition, went to family video, did my chore. I'm always forgetting things. That's my always thing. So what's yours? If somebody were to describe your life with the word always, what would they say? What are you always doing? Are you always encouraging people? Are you always watching sports? Today doesn't count. It's a special day. Are you always exercising? Are you always working? Are you always on your phone? Are you always posting something on Facebook or Instagram? Are you always grumpy? Are you always tired? What's your always thing? What are you always doing? We live in a culture and in a society where a lot of times we are encouraged to make our always thing about ourselves. We're, we're told, we're encouraged to focus on our wants, our desires, our goals, our ends. We live in a rather me-focused world, capital M, capital E. And we see this in a lot of different ways. For example, there's this survey that was done a few months back. They interviewed a 1,000 different kids, ages 6 through 17, and they asked them, what do you want to do when you grow up? 52% of them said that they wanted to be some kind of online personality. Most of them said they wanted to be YouTubers. And when asked why they wanted to pursue that career, 11% of them said that they wanted to be famous. Uh, another 11% said that they wanted to express themselves in their career. They're looking for that avenue of self-expression. Another 8% said they wanted to be recognized by other people. I'm not really sure how that's different from being famous, but th there you go. 52% of kids want to be some kind of celebrity when they grow up. 
because we are rather me-focused culture. But before we shake our heads and we say, oh, that wayward generation, understand this is not just a kid problem, this is a people problem. Because we can look at articles and magazines and periodicals that are not directed at kids and look at titles of Harvest Business Review articles like How to Improve and the Delicate Art of Self-Promotion. We used to call that bragging, but now we call it self-promotion. It's an art. We can look at Forbes. We look at the article. It's entitled uh, Self-Promotion as, as a Leadership Skill, which is kind of paradoxical to me because I'm supposed to inspire people and lead people and direct them towards some sort of goal and some vision by talking about me. We are in a very me-focused time of history. We're encouraged to pursue my wants, my desires, my end goals. We are self-promoting, self-gratifying. It's all about the capital M, capital E, me. And we're told that if we live this me-centered life, if we pursue our goals, our dreams, our desires, what we want that gratifies ourselves, that's how we find greatness in this world. Believe it or not, Jesus wants you to be great too. He really does. He just has a slightly different game plan of how to find that greatness. We read about it in the book of Matthew, chapter 23, verse 11. He says this, The greatest among you, so there will be great ones, okay? He does want you to be great. The greatest among you, will be your servant. Now notice what he didn't say. He didn't say the greatest among you will serve themselves. He didn't say the greatest among you will pursue the capital M, capital E, me. He said the greatest among you will be your servant. In other words, instead of having a, a me focus to this life, Jesus is encouraging us to have a you focus in this life. Not a selfish way of living, but a self less way of living, one that seeks to serve other people. What can I do for you? This message is part two of a series called Selfless. You know, we're told in this world that if we want to find satisfaction and contentment, if we want that life that we all desire, we need to pursue our, our selfishness, our selfish gains, our, our wants, our, and so on, which is just sad because God has already laid out a plan in Scripture. He says, I have a desire and a dream for your life. And who doesn't want that, by the way? If anybody knows what's going to bring contentment and satisfaction to the human soul, it's probably the one that created it. He says, I, I have a dream and this desire for your life, but it's not going to be found through selfishness. Rather, it's found through selflessness. That's the whole idea behind this series. And today we're talking about the contrast of this me focus versus this you focus. We've seen what the me focus looks, looks like. Let's take a look at this you focus, this selfless kind of mindset and what that looks like. There's a great example in scripture. In the book of Acts chapter 9, it's this lady named Tabitha. And in chapter 9 verse 36, it goes like this. It says, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name was Dorcas. Now, don't giggle. I know that's a funny name. But in Greek, Dorcas means gazelle. It's a very graceful, elegant name. She was a, a praised, well thought of woman. And it says that she was always doing good and helping the poor. Now, earlier I asked you, what is your always thing? What's the thing you're always doing? If people were to look at your life and use the word always to describe you, what would they say? When it came to Tabitha, people took a look at her life and they said, she is always doing good and helping the poor. And if we were to read a few verses down, we'd find that specifically she was making garments for the poor. She's making sure that they weren't naked and cold and destitute. 
This is a woman who served. She didn't have a me-centered focus in life. She had a you-centered focus. What can I do for you? She was selfless, and that made her great. This is the first Greek woman to be spoken of positively in the New Testament. Okay, up to this point, everybody's been Jewish and Greek people. They were kind of like idolaters and dogs. But she has faith in Christ. The gospel's been open to her. And she is such a, a godly woman, a servant, that she's spoken highly of and highly regarded. She's one of the great ones. And that's why when Tabitha passes away in this story in Acts 9, the people are so tore up about it. They go, they find the apostle Peter, and they say, you got to come see her, you got to come see her. And so he comes, and God works a miracle through her, brings this woman back to life. And a heck of a lot of people get interested in Jesus after something like that happens. She is one of the great ones. And she wasn't great because she pursued her selfish desires and her selfish wants. She's great because she had this selfless, you-focused mentality. She was a faithful servant. And service is a phenomenal way to cultivate that character of selflessness in our lives. And so this morning, we're going to spend the rest of our time together talking about three very simple ways that we can cultivate selflessness by becoming a faithful servant. And these are very simple things. You know, you don't have to be highly skilled to do these or, or highly knowledgeable or highly intelligent or highly gifted. Anybody can do this. And that's what's great about the kingdom of God. Anybody can be great if they're just willing to be selfless and serve. So here are these three things. First one, if you want to be a faithful servant, if you want to be selfless, bring a lunch. Simple, right? Bring a lunch. Let me unpack that a little bit, what I mean. If you were to think back to the story of King David, you'll recognize or you'll remember that David was probably the greatest king in the history of Israel. He is somebody who's called a man after God's own heart. That's a title that nobody else in scripture has received. He was one of the great ones. He was a military hero. He slew Goliath. If you don't recall the story of David and Goliath, David was, and Goliath was, and David was, and Goliath was, like, that's it in a nutshell, okay? That's David and Goliath. David killed that giant. He became regarded amongst all the people of his nation. He led the army. He, he led them to victory after victory. David's fame and notoriety gets to such extent, to such widespread uh, fame, that women, random women, can post songs and come out in the streets and sing about his victories during the parades like some sort of Disney cartoon, right? Like, that doesn't happen in real life. How many, fellas, let me ask you, last time you did something spectacular, which is like every week, right? Because we're pretty amazing. The last time you did something spectacular, when did your family regale you with a song of your exploits? Never, right? Let me tell you my story. So this week was cold, right? Monday especially, it was really bad. Like it was windy, it was cold, it was gross outside. And my wife sent me a text. She said, look, will you get the groceries and pick up some dinner before you come home tonight. I said, sure thing. I am your knight in shining armor. And my shining armor looked like coverall bibs and some boots. So I went out. I braved the cold and the wind all the way to save a lot, where I got like 80% of my list because things were picked over. And then I drove all the way to County Market, again, braving the blustery gales and the snowy terrain. Got the rest of my groceries, went to Burger King, my window was frozen closed, so I had to get out of the car again, go inside, I had to balance the drinks in the bag. I, it was pretty amazing, all right? I braved the, that wintry dragon. 
I pulled into my driveway. I put all the bags on my arms because I'm not making two trips out to the car. I come in the kitchen door like some sort of conquering hero, and I say, I did it. I'm home. And there was no song of my exploits. There's nobody to say, Jordan, he is oh so strong. He conquers the winter all night long. I wrote that in 30 seconds. She had an hour. And all she could come up with was kiss on the cheek and thanks, honey. Like, we don't get songs today, okay? That's weird, but they sang songs about David because he was great. Not just because he would go to the grocery store, but because he conquered nations, because he brought security to the kingdom, because people could look at him and see that he was a leader and a hero and a man, like a man. But that's not what made David great, actually. A lot of people think that David was great because he won battles. But if you know David's story, you know he was great, or his greatness started because he carried a basket. We find that story in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. David was the youngest of eight sons, which meant that while the spring came and the older brothers were off at war, David had to hang back at the house, take care of the sheep and the farm. And one day, David's father comes to him. It's in 1 Samuel 17, 17. It says, now Jesse, that's the dad, he said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your, young, for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit and see how your brothers are. Bring back some assurance from them. So David's dad essentially says, David, will you take some lunch to your brothers? And instead of saying, Dad, I'm really busy. Could we do it later? Instead of saying, Dad, they're grown men. They can take care of themselves. David says, yeah, okay. And he takes a lunch. And it's because he chose to serve. To do that very simple thing that David was placed in a situation where he could fight Goliath where he could become a hero, where he could become regaled by his countrymen, where he could become a leader, where he could eventually become king, all of David's greatness got its start, not because he was some conquering hero, but because he was willing to serve in such a very simple way. He brought a lunch. It's like Jesus said, the greatest among you will be your servant. Remember? So if you want to be great, if you want to be that selfless, faithful servant, take a lunch. You never know where it might lead. So that's the first one. It's pretty easy, right? Here's the second one. If you want to be great, if you want to be a faithful servant, offer a ride. Pretty easy to do. Just offer a ride. Again, let's unpack that. If we were to fast forward a little bit in the biblical story, we get to the days of Jesus. And specifically, I want to look at the last week of Jesus, that Sunday, right before he rides into Jerusalem. It's called Palm Sunday today. And on that day, he's going to ride into Jerusalem for the last time. And, and so he doesn't just want to like stroll in there. He wants to make a point, which is pretty typical of Jesus. A lot of what he did was to make some sort of point. And so this is what he says to his disciples on that day. This is in the book of Luke, chapter 19. He says, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. So the disciples, they go into the city. They find this colt, this baby donkey tied up. And they say, hey, we need to borrow your donkey to the owner of the donkey. And he says, okay. Now, and to understand the significance of that exchange, we've got to put ourselves in the shoes of the guy who owned this donkey, okay? Donkeys were not just animals. They weren't pets. They were assets, 
Okay, this was like his tractor or his plow a little bit. Like there was money tied up in this donkey. And, and this wasn't like some old jalopy Eeyore donkey either. Like this was a high-end premium donkey because he, he, wasn't, he didn't have any miles on him, right? He was new. He liked the high-end hooves and supercharged hee-haw and all that. It was a top-tier donkey. And again, you think of it in terms of a car. You know, if somebody were to ride that donkey out of town, it'd be like somebody buying that car and driving it off the lot. The value would depreciate almost instantly. And so this guy, when, when the disciples come, they say, can we borrow your donkey because Jesus needs it? He stands to take a, a pretty substantial financial loss. And we don't know anything about him, right? We don't know his name. We don't know what he did for a living. We don't know how many donkeys he's got. All we know is that he didn't say, what's in it for me? And he didn't say, what am I going to get out of this? Instead of being me-focused, he just served. He said, yeah, you can borrow my donkey. If Jesus needs it, it's his. And in that simple act of service, this guy becomes a part of a story that is so much bigger than he could ever dream or imagine. A story 553 years in the making. Because 553 years prior to this, in the nation of Israel, there was this prophet named Zechariah. And Zechariah had this prophecy. He said, there's going to come a day where God acts in a big way. He is going to have a chosen servant. His chosen king, he's going to send into the city, and that king is going to save us all in the name of God. And that chosen king, that special servant, he's not going to ride into the city on some war horse or some chariot. You know, you might expect somebody important like that to have like the equivalent of a stretch limo, but he said, no, he's going to come on a humble donkey. So Jesus, riding into this city on this donkey that's never been ridden before, he is preaching a sermon without ever opening his mouth. And essentially the message is this, I'm the guy you've been waiting on. I'm the guy that the prophet spoke about 553 years prior to this. I'm the one that God has chosen to send to you to save you. And I'm not coming on a horse or a stallion or a chariot to build myself up and look pretty. I'm coming humbly because I came to serve. That's the message of this picture. And really that's the message of, of Jesus' whole story from cradle to colt to cross, it's, it's about selfless service for you. Jesus didn't come into this world to make himself great and to build himself up. In fact, he says in the book of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that giving of himself and his life, that's his ultimate act of service. He lays his life down, not for himself, for you, to take care of your sin, to wash you clean so that you can be forgiven and you can have life and you can know God in this reconciled relationship and you can have hope and promise and you can have everything that God ever desired and dreamed for you to possess. Maybe not in this life, but in eternity. He came not for capital M, capital E, but for Y-O-U to serve. That's the example that he sets. And this guy with a donkey who does something so simple as offer a ride, he becomes a part of the greatest story ever told. If you want to be a selfless, faithful servant, it's not difficult. Offer a ride. You never know what you may be stepping into and what story God's going to tell through you. So that's the second one. Here's the last one. We've got bring a lunch, offer a ride, and finally, carry a towel. 
Carry a towel. It's not heavy. We can all do it. And for to understand this one, we need to fast forward a couple of days past this last story. We're going to look at Thursday, the last week of Jesus' life. That day is the day before the Passover feast, and Jesus is meeting around the table with his, his disciples. He's sharing this Passover meal. And if you're not familiar with Passover, it's, it's pretty apt that this is all taking place on Passover. That was the day the Jewish people celebrated how God had rescued them out of slavery thousands of years ago. And the way that happened was that they had to take this sacrificial lamb, they had to take the blood of it and put it on their doorposts, and, and the angel of death would pass over the homes marked with blood, hence the name, but the homes that were not covered with blood, they would, the angel would enter the home and take the life of the firstborn child. So, pretty apt given that Jesus, about 24 hours from now, is going to make his own kind of sacrifice. He's going to be the sacrificial lamb, and those covered by his blood are going to be passed over by death and its perils. So he's got a lot on his mind, right? Pretty safe to assume. And probably more than anything, he just wants to have this, this last meal with his friends, just have this enjoyable memory. But it is a holiday. And as often happens on holidays, there's a little bit of drama that gets stirred up. The disciples, they start arguing amongst themselves about probably the stupidest thing ever. Who's the greatest? Now keep in mind, Jesus, the Son of God, is in the room. And these guys are arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest among them. It's a very me-centered, self-centered kind of argument. It's the kind of thing that our culture could get behind 100%. But they're arguing about this. And I can almost see this play out in my head. Like the Apostle John stands up and he's like, I'm called the one whom Jesus loved. We're tight, okay? Like obviously I'm the greatest. And then Peter stands up. He's like, oh yeah, show of hands. Who walked on water with Jesus? Oh, just me? That's because I'm the greatest. And somebody in the back of the room is like, didn't you sink because you lost faith? And Peter's like, shh. It's this dumb argument unfolding. And this whole time, Jesus is in the room, kind of being quiet, watching it happen. And then he stands up, and he does something really unexpected. We read about it in the book of John, chapter 13, verse 4. It says, so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So like foot washing probably seems kind of weird to us in our culture, but understand that in this ancient culture that wore open-toed sandals all day long, every day, walking around, getting their feet all nasty, and then coming into people's nice clean house, foot washing was a pretty normal thing. Like if somebody comes over today, you might say, can I take your coat? That's kind of like what foot washing was. Can I wash your feet? Can I get your feet clean before you come over here and trample my sofa? Like that's what it was. And usually that job was reserved for the lowest servant in the house because this wasn't like a desirable thing. And yet here is Jesus, the most important person in the room, the son of God made flesh, getting on his knees and washing nasty old feet. Like he's the least important person in the room. It's just this spectacular picture of humility and selflessness. To kind of maybe put it in modern day terms, he kind of reminds me a little bit of the former president of Uruguay. He was a guy named Jose Musica. And, and he was the leader of 3.4 million people, but you wouldn't know it by the way he lived. Jose preferred not to go by his name, and he certainly didn't tolerate Mr. President. His preferred title was Pepe. He just wanted people to call him Pepe. 
And he didn't wear fine tailored clothes or expensive suits. He did own a jacket. I've seen a picture of him in a jacket. He really, he dressed like this most of the time. This was his typical attire anytime he went to work, whether that meant going to the Capitol building or a UN meeting, mind you. They, didn't, they weren't real fans of this because of his open-toed sandals and stuff. It was just a button-down shirt, some slacks, and some sandals. Jose was a pretty chill guy. And to get to work, this is his house, by the way. It's not a mansion. It's a three-room home. And not three-bedroom. It's a three-room home. Very simple. To get to work every day, he didn't have this luxury vehicle or a limousine or even an expensive security detail. He had an old beat-up VW bug. And he would get in his home and he'd drive the 20 miles into the city. He'd go to work. He'd make his salary, 90% of which he gave away to charities to help the poor in his nation. And then he would come home. This guy led 3.4 million people and yet he lives more chill than my next door neighbor, right? Like he just, he doesn't take himself too seriously. He's a pretty selfless, humble guy. And today, one of his favorite things to do now that he's retired isn't to find some luxurious, expensive hobby. He likes to sit on his porch swing with his three-legged dog, Manuela. This is just an interesting dude. And there's something about that kind of humility that's just appealing and captivating. And that's what Jesus is doing in this moment. He is hands down the most important guy in the room, and yet he is living with just this peculiar, enthralling humility. And that's why people love him. I mean, this is one of those qualities that has drawn people to Jesus for thousands of years. I mean, you, it's easy to find people that don't like Christians. It's easy to find people that don't like the church or Christianity. But in all of my reading and all of my listening, I have yet to find somebody who says, you know what, I just can't stand Jesus. You're not going to find very many people like that because whether you believe in him or not, there is something about his character that just draws you in and you need to know more about this guy who has so much influence and yet lives with so much selflessness and humility. That's the power of service. It shapes those qualities within us. That's what Jesus has demonstrated for his disciples in this passage. And when he's finished, he says something that really ought to shake every single one of us. In verse 12, he says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? I'm going to tell you, that's one of the, the, that's a hard question, and that's, that's really kind of a trick question. Because the more you get to understand Jesus and who he is, and what it means for him to get on his hands and knees and serve the more humbling it is and the more it will change you. So no, they do not understand what he's done for them. But Jesus continues, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. So now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. And I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So essentially he's saying, look guys, I'm your teacher, I'm your rabbi, I'm your Lord, I'm your leader, I'm your master. You follow me wherever I go. So follow me in this too. If I'm willing to humble myself and serve, then so should you. And that goes double for us who call him Savior and God and King. If he's willing to get on his hands and knees and carry a towel to serve, then so should we. The greatest among you will be your servant, remember? If you want to be great, 
if you want to be selfless, if you want to be that faithful servant, it's not difficult. Carry a towel. I asked a question earlier, what are you always doing? There are a thousand things that we could use to answer that question. A lot of them have to do with us. What am I always doing? I'm helping myself. I'm appealing to myself. I'm satisfying myself. That's an easy way to spend a life, but it's not going to lead to a great life. If you want to find greatness, always be serving. Always be carrying this you focus, not what I can do for me, what can I do for you. If you want to be great, serve. Open a door. Make a sandwich. Make a meal. Carry a bag. Take a coat. Give a hug. Read to a child. Pray with someone. Help somebody on the side of the road. Get a shovel. Shovel a driveway. Pack a lunch. Offer a ride. Carry a towel. Less me and more you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the example of humility and service that he's left us with, both in his life and in his cross. And I pray that the impact of that would wash over us and would change our hearts and our minds. That it would humble us to know that the God of the universe came to serve us and save us. And I pray that in that humility we would seek to serve others. That through our actions, through our, our selflessness, Father, you might be lifted up as people take a look and say, what is up with those people? And I pray that your spirit would work so powerfully through our humble example that the name of Jesus is the only answer that people can come to, that people are impressed by you, that they praise you, that they want you because of what they see in us. Father, help us to be selfless. Help us to serve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.